Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. And when, when you look at the research and you conduct randomized controlled trials, unfortunately, they're not achieving any better results, modern day diets, compared to their predecessors. Hmm. And that's the same with intermittent fasting and various forms of intermittent fasting that we're talking about. You do get weight loss, followed by weight regain. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition, and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. On today's episode, I chat with friend of the podcast, Dr. Nick Fuller from University of Sydney. This was during my trip to Australia in December, and we talk about everything to do with sustainable weight loss, including why losing just 5% of your total body weight triggers a cascade of processes that can slow your metabolism and ultimately lead to weight gain. A lot of people can resonate with this. We discuss calories in, calories out, and a broader view on energy balance, protein requirements, and the important practices you need to know about to prevent visceral fat accumulation. And we explain what visceral fat means as well. We also discuss the potential impact of Ozempic and other drugs in this new class of medications that is taking the world by storm and how we should be approaching any intervention that ultimately leads to weight loss. Dr. Nick leads the research team within the Charles Perkins Center at the University of Sydney, which focuses on the physical and mental health disorders associated with obesity. His research has been published in The Lancet, JAMA, and his team provide independent clinical analysis of emerging products and technology for the treatment of obesity and associated illnesses and disease. Remember, you can watch this podcast on YouTube for free. It is one of the best ways to support the podcast. Subscribe and hit the notification bell. And remember, you can download the Doctor's Kitchen app for free. You get a 14-day free trial and Android users, yes, you will have access to the app from the 29th of January. So by the time you're listening to this, you should have access to the Android version as well. So go check it out. Also check out the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter where I share something to eat, something to read, something to listen to that will help you have a healthy, happy week, as well as our newsletter for free seasonal Sundays. We do a deep dive into an ingredient, looking at the cultural and the historical significance of it, as well as how we weave it into cuisines and the nutritional medicine benefits as well. For now, onto the podcast. Before you listen to the podcast episode, I do want to warn you that the audio is slightly faded as we didn't have our recording equipment out in Australia. We've done the best that we can with the audio that was available. I hope you still enjoy it. And the content is so valuable. We still wanted to release this episode with Dr. Nick. So please enjoy and just be aware that the audio isn't the best, but we still want you to enjoy our chat. On to the podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Nick, great to see you again. Likewise. <laughs> what, what, are the, what, what is the number one reason why people can't lose weight? Well, most of us think it's because of that lack of willpower, that we just don't stick to the diet for long enough. We go back to our old habits and consequently we put the weight back on. And that's largely due to the way, I guess, the dieting industry bundle up their programs. Mm. They sell these cute, neatly packaged four, eight, 12 week programs. They get you to, um, I guess, you know, restrict your calorie consumption and often quite um, extreme. Mm. And they get you to follow a, a strict militant exercise program. Uh, and we stick to it for, you know, anywhere between that four to 12 weeks. And yes, we do go back to some of our old ways, but it's not the reason why we're putting the weight back on. Mm. The reason is because of our physiology, mm -hmm. all these biological protections that come into play the minute you lose a small but clinically significant amount of weight. And I'm just talking about three to five kilos or 5% of your body weight. Your body starts to go, hang on, what's happening here? It goes into survival mode. It shuts down and a whole cascade of reactions take place within your body to take you back to your start point. And this is the real reason why, and the very reason why, we're failing on our long-term weight loss journey mm. or our dieting attempts. And it's the thing we're not talking about. We all talk about the short-term wins. Yeah. We go out and we celebrate the five, 10, 20 kilo weight loss that we've had um, with our friends, family, and colleagues. But then we're not talking about that long-term pain mm. when we stack that weight back on. And that's the long-term repercussions of dieting that we're seeing in our clinics uh, at the University of Sydney and Royal Prince Alfred Hospital. Everyone has been on the latest and greatest diet. Often they're trying up to five diets every year. Yeah. And they're just in this vicious cycle of up, down, up, down, and often driving up their weight. Mm. Um, and I guess just to summarize that, there's some fascinating research within twins that shows that intentional weight loss actually accelerates your weight gain. What? So over a 25-year study, they followed up more than 4,000 uh, sets of twins, and they found that the twin that had been dieting was always heavier than the one that hadn't been dieting throughout their life. Really? Wow. So it's obviously independent of genetic factors. That intentional weight loss or cyclic weight loss over and over and over again is actually driving up your set point over time. And 
it's something that we need to stop. We need to be equipping people with the right education so they stop that dieting or yo-yo dieting journey that they're on and follow evidence-based care from healthcare professionals that actually know what they're talking about. Yeah, so I just want to reiterate that because I think what you said there deserves to be hammered home. A clinically significant amount of weight loss is just 5% of your weight. So if I'm 100 kilos, let's say, and I lose five kilos, that is enough to start the process of those mechanisms that are designed to protect us from too quick a weight loss in the wild. This is part of our evolutionary makeup that can trigger actually weight gain over the long term if I don't stick to my sort of militant weight loss protocol of exercise and low calorie diets. Yeah, absolutely. And it can happen at even a lower weight loss. So just three kilograms of weight loss um, is when you start to see these changes within a body. But yeah, I mean, a, a sort of a good way of thinking of it is because typically we do lose the five kilos mm. quite easy or 5% of our body weight. Mm. That is when this cascade of physiological changes start to take place within your body to take you back to your start point. Mm. So even if you're sticking to your diet and you're doing all you can um, to follow those new habits, keep the calories down, keep the exercise going, this is taking place within your body, which we can get into in a little bit more depth, mm -hmm. to take you back to where you began. And this is your body going, um, I need to survive. And in order to procreate and survive, mm. I need to go back to where I once was because tens of thousands of years ago, food wasn't available on every corner of every block. And um, when food was available, we would gorge. We'd gorge on those foods naturally high in sugar, naturally high in fat. And then our bodies learnt to shut down during times of deprivation, to hold on to those calories, to hold on to our fat stores until food was then available again. You fast forward to the modern day environment, Food is available on every corner of every block. We have a hard time saying no. Consequently, our weight's going up by about 0.5 um, to one kilo every year. Mm -hmm. So that's up to around two pounds. Mm -hmm. And then what do we do? We look in the mirror and we react. Yeah. We react by following the latest and greatest diet. Mm. Um, and this is where these cascade of physiological responses take place, taking you back to your start point. Yeah, um, I'm going to uh, put a bookmark on that because you mentioned set point or weight set point. So I definitely want to go into that in a bit more depth. Um, another thing that people ask us a lot about is visceral fat in particular. And I guess what are the three most important things that people should be aware when it comes to losing visceral fat? Because DEXA scans are getting more popular these days. I think they're giving us vital information about the hidden fat around our organs and why that is more of an issue somewhat than uh, subcutaneous fat um, that doesn't look as aesthetically pleasing. But perhaps you could tell us a bit more about visceral fat and what are the three most important things in your opinion that are uh, necessary for people to know about how to lose that visceral fat? Absolutely, so like you said, subcutaneous fat is the fat that you typically see um, as the folds, you know, on the stomach. The visceral fat is the one that lies deep within, mm. that surrounds the organs and prevents your organs from working efficiently. So that fat surrounding, you know, for example, your pancreas, um, not allowing it to do its job, 
and bring blood sugar levels down. Consequently, your body's not working properly and you can then move into a state of pre-diabetes and then eventually type 2 diabetes and the complications that come with that. And the most powerful way of reducing our visceral fat and the number one thing that we should all be focusing on, not even three things, is exercise. Mm. All you need to be doing every day is moving mm. and I'm not talking about the strict militant exercise programs that are often prescribed in the diet programs <laughs> where we go all or nothing we get injured and then have the setbacks and go back to where we once were in terms of our baseline activity level I'm talking about incorporating incidental activity focusing mm. on the everyday movement we evolved to move but now in the modern day environment we drive everywhere from A to B the absurdity is, if we even include structured activity, often we drive to, say, a structured environment like a gym, do our 30-minute workout, drive back home again. So if there's one thing that you want to do to improve your health and improve your visceral fat is get moving, mm. particularly as we come into the new year, these new news resolutions um, uh, are being set. If you're going to reduce visceral fat, um, and reduce your risk of developing heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and other metabolic disease. Mm. It's just incorporating at least 30 minutes of exercise every day, but more importantly, focusing on incidental activity. Mm. Um, and the other thing, I guess, is a, is a good way of highlighting that difference between subcutaneous and visceral fat is a population group known as the sumo wrestlers. Mm. Now, some of them have body weights up to 200 kilograms, yeah. but yet they are metabolically healthy. Most of that fat that they have is subcutaneous fat that lies just beneath the skin. And when we do metabolic tests on them, we take bloods um, and, and check their diabetes and, and heart disease risk. Most of the time, they actually come back in the normal range despite their presence or, or profile putting them in what would be an overweight or obesity um, range according to body mass index. And why? Because they are moving and they are doing strenuous activity a large part of the day mm. and they're doing it every day. Yeah. Uh, so you can be walking around and still be in a healthy body weight range but have a high visceral fat percentage, particularly if you're not doing any activity. Mm. So it really comes down to one thing, not even three. Yeah. It's just exercise and it's, it's not necessarily a structured exercise. It's firstly focusing on incidental exercise, particularly if you haven't been moving for a period of time because mm. you're putting yourself at high risk of heart attack if you all of a sudden start a strenuous program. And once you get a good baseline incidental activity, I'm talking about using stairs instead of lifts, walking mm. to and from the bus stop if you can, um, walking around, having walking meetings, little simple things like that. Once you've incorporated that baseline level, then you can start to focus on including some structured, structured activity mm. and a mixture. So some of it might be huffing and puffing where you're running or run, walk at an oval. The next day you might be in the pool, swimming some easy laps. The next day um, you might be walking with a friend and then next day cycling. Mixing up what you do, but making sure it becomes part of your every day. Yeah. It should be in the calendar. It's not something that you do as a nice to have, it's a must have. Yeah, it's almost like you should be focusing on the incidental exercise before you even think about going to the gym or getting a gym membership. So before actually investing in structured exercise, it's actually just a case of, okay, what are the opportunities I have 
to start moving a lot more in my day. And I always feel a bit of a fraud saying this on a podcast because generally we're sat down, mm. you know, we're not moving, we're inside. It would wonder, it would be wonderful to have this like as a walking sort of podcast, day. but the the audio is terrible <laughs> and I've tried it before and it just doesn't work. But when I think about my sort of um, incidental exercise, it's walking uh, to uh, to work, taking uh, the the bus sort of like one step earlier than I would do, making sure that um, whenever I'm doing a meeting that's virtual, I'm usually on on like in a park environment or just taking a walking meeting if it's in person. Um, and my friend does a really interesting thing where he keeps a kettlebell by his desk mm -hmm. and he has like an hour timer and he'll literally just pick up the kettlebell and do a few swings, obviously taking care that he's not going to be hitting anyone. Um, but just to get that sort of like movement in every hour, because I mean, you're an academic, you know what it's like. You're going to be sat behind your desk quite often indoors without the opportunities mm -hmm. to get that incidental exercise. What are the things that you tend to do? Well, I definitely focus on those small things that you mentioned. Mm. So, um, you know, parking further away, um, if you're on a public transport, getting off a stop earlier. And yes, I know, I understand that some of these things do take more time out of your day, but it's so important to focus on those small things mm. in our health because mm. without our health, we don't have anything else. Yeah. So, you know, make those little small changes. You don't need to be signing, like you said, signing up to the gym membership um, and doing the all or nothing because often we're not getting that baseline activity level in. And it could even be housework, you know, and, and focusing on doing that house chore a little bit more vigorous yeah. than, you, than you normally would. And yeah. It might be sweeping the stairs or, you know, mowing the lawns. Um, all of that adds up. And if you can get your heart rate up and down for short bouts of, of time, that is just as potent. So think about the accumulative effect of, of your exercise throughout the day through incidental activity. And once you got to that level, then you can start thinking about ways of maybe incorporating structured activity with friends. So instead of going to catch up over coffee and sitting down, mm. again, you could just go for a walk together, something that I like to do with my friends, go to the park, kick a ball, Whatever it might be, mm. um, it's it's you know simple but very effective way of uh, you know focusing on that number one thing being mm. activity and keeping our visceral fat levels low. Yeah, definitely. Mm. It reminds me of a, a study actually that was conducted by some Stanford researchers, and they had two cohorts of um, house workers, mm. um, and I think they were cleaners within a hotel or some sort of environment like that. And they told one group that the amount of activity that they were doing equated to like a full workout in the gym and the others, they didn't inform them, mm -hmm. something to that effect. And the ones that had that mindset of I'm doing this work every day and this is actually exercise and really good for me, lost weight. Mm -hmm. So there is something to be said about the psychology of that incidental exercise that you do every single day. Mm. And just the mindset and engaging in that mindset of, you know what, like me walking to work doesn't feel like much, but actually is that cumulative effect that's going to be supporting my metabolic health. And I guess the question that comes to mind, and I'm sure people are going to be thinking about this is, okay, I do all those small things. I try and exercise every day and get the opportunities when I you know, do walking meetings, all the rest of it. If there were certain types of exercise that I should be focusing a little bit more on that could help with visceral fat, are there ones that you can point to or is it 
any sort of cardiovascular exercise? Yeah, so this is a good question. I think the other point to raise is if you are moving every day, um, but still, uh, you know, classified as, as overweight or in the obesity range mm. according to the crude measure of BMI, your visceral fat um, will, be, will be low. You, know, you won't have a high visceral fat. Uh, you'll probably be metabolically healthy. Mm. So that's an important take-home message. You can be, you know, overweight but still healthy. Um, in terms of what types of exercise, it's important to focus on a mixture. Mm -hmm. Now, that's important for two reasons. Um, the first one is because you have to think of your body, um, I guess, or, or what you're trying to do um, as a similar sort of thing as, as what an athlete's trying to do. You know, if you keep giving them the same program day in, day out, yeah. their performance plateaus. Now, the same thing, unfortunately, happens with weight management and specifically weight loss. If you keep doing the same thing day in, day out, if you've got to a level where um, it's an adequate baseline level for weight loss, which is usually around 60 minutes of ex exercise a day, 60 minutes of structured activity, not 30 minutes, then um, you've got to mix up what you're doing. So I gave a brief example before, but that might look like something where one day you do some general aerobic activity, a slow 30, 40 minute walk or a moderate intensity where you're slightly huffing and puffing, struggling to maintain a conversation with the person you might be walking with. Mm -hmm. um, but the next day you focus on, you might be time poor, you focus on a higher intensity mm. workout. So it might be just 15 or 20 minutes where you go down to the oval and you do a, a, a shuttle run and then you walk back. Shuttle run, walk back. And if you can't run because of pain with joints, etc., you do it in the pool. And that might be a quick lap of swimming followed by a little bit of recovery. Quick lap or some running, pool running, yeah. get your breath back, etc., etc. Then you would go back to another day where maybe it's the aerobic continuous activity again um, where you go and have a game of tennis with your friends. So I think the most important thing there is that you're not focusing on the same thing every day. Yeah. You need to shake up what you're doing. That's the best um, way of achieving your, your weight loss goals because otherwise you're going to hit that plateau. Mm. Um, and the second point is all activity is actually good for re reducing our visceral fat. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's continuous aerobic um, where you do the long 45, one-hour walk, whatever it might be, but it's also the short, higher-intensity workouts. All exercise is good, and the most important thing is that you do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that because that's basically the mix of exercise that I'm doing right now. Like if I just think about the last few days since arriving in Australia, I did a strength workout at the outdoor gym. So that was a mixture of sort of body weight exercises, dips, uh, chin-ups, that sort of thing. And uh, then I did um, a HIIT workout, um, which was basically walking down the hill and running up and then walking down at a leisurely pace mm -hmm. and then running up as fast as I can. That, I mean, those kill me, to be honest. And the reason why I've started doing a little bit more of the HIIT stuff, um, as well as the, the long, steady uh, cardio, is I want to try and push up my VO2 max. And my VO2 max is in the good level, but I want it to be in the great level as that not only has obviously visceral fat benefits and weight maintenance benefits, um, but it also has longevity benefits as well that I'm uh, I'm thinking a bit more about. Are you, are you doing some, do, do you sort of measure your VO2 max yourself? Or? Yeah, I do occasionally, uh -huh. um, you know, training for track and field. Mm. 
Uh, but you're right, there is you know a lot of indicators there that high VO2 max have good outcomes for things like um, longevity. Mm. So I, again, I, I think that comes down to you know mixing up what you do mm. because to get those improvements in, in your aerobic capacity, um, you can't be doing the same thing all the time. You need to stress your body. You need to shake up what you're doing. Think of yourself as an athlete, even if you're really struggling with your weight, but do it in the comfort of your own environment. So that might be a pool where you feel you know, happy working out or comfortable working out, or it might be in your lounge room doing, um, you mentioned body weight circuits, YouTube videos, anything like that, yeah. where um, most importantly, you're actually going to do it. Because if you're taking yourself to an environment where you don't feel comfortable, um, one, you won't enjoy it, but two, you won't stick to it. Mm. So I think that's that's a key message as well. Yeah, yeah. I think consistency is a, is a big, big area that a lot of people struggle with. And I think, you know, just making sure that you're getting back on it as soon as you can and not spiraling to that shame and beating yourself up that you haven't done it uh, uh, as regularly as you wanted to. You know, I've had many patients and colleagues that, fall into that trap and then just sort of throw everything out the window and be like, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'll do it next month or you, you put it off. So just getting those sort of like small consistent habits as your foundation and then you can build on top of that. Absolutely. And just start small, five minutes, 10 minutes. Mm. Um, before you know it, you'll find that 20 minutes is quite easy and you'll find 30 minutes is quite easy. And then before you know it, you'll probably find that over the course of the day, you're actually doing an hour of activity. So yeah. start gradual. It's, you're not going to get there straight away. But that's also important for preventing injury and setbacks, particularly if you are carrying excess weight. Mm. So a lot of stress we're putting through the joints. Mm. And that's why it's also important to mix up your body weight bearing exercise with non-body weight bearing exercise. What I mean by that is um, body weight would be where you're walking or running. And then the non-body weight is where you take all the stress off the joints and you might be on the bike mm. um, or in the pool. Mm. Mm. Uh, let's talk about these three bug idea, big ideas uh, about what people should know about weight loss. So I'm, I'm sort of trying to introduce a new concept to the podcast where a guest uh, with expertise such as yourself can give away three tangible big ideas that people can take home. You've already given us a big one already, I think, uh, a, a few. Um, but I thought, you know, if, if people were going to think of three things, what would be the first thing that you'd want people to know about when it comes to weight loss? Number one would be that fad dieting um, and, and these unrealistic, unsustainable programs in particular uh, is, is going to accelerate your, your weight problem, mm. accelerate weight gain. Mm. So, you know, you might start at the 90 kilos and go down to the 80 but I promise you, and research has also proven this, that you will go back not just to 90, you'll put on a little bit of extra. Mm. In Australia, we refer to that as the plus GST, the plus 10%. <laughs> plus 10%, gotcha. Unfortunately, yeah. your body's going into protection mode. It's, it's learning to prepare for that next bout of starvation, mm. and it will put on a little bit of extra fat to prepare for it so that it's better able to survive that next bout of starvation that you're going to put it through. So the biggest, I guess, um, message around what do you do when it comes to weight loss is yeah, definitely stop um, that dieting cycle because, you know, we talked about the, the research in twins. It will accelerate your weight gain. 
and it will drive up your set point over time. Mm. And we've had many you know, cases and patients in our clinics where they started off in a normal weight range. Mm. And unfortunately, they began dieting very early. They then dieted themselves into an overweight range. Um, by the time we start seeing them in our clinics, they're then classified as, as obesity um, as per BMI. So you need to stop that. You need to break that cycle because it's doing more harm than good. Yeah. Um, you mentioned weight set point there. Um, yeah. I, I wonder if we can go into a little bit more detail about what that means. Yeah, so set point is, is, is basically the weight you remember being at for a long period of time in your adult years. Now, what I mean by adult years is probably typically 20 years plus um, when all the growth and development has stopped and we're sort of at that weight, program weight um, in our adulthood. Now, for... One person, it might be 60 kilos. So the next person, it might be 110. And the next person, it might be 75. Everyone has a unique set point and that weight they remember being at for a long period of time. Now, this is the weight that our body is now protecting. Mm -hmm. This is the weight that it says, okay, in order to survive and procreate, I need to stay at this weight. So if it goes down low, I need to shut down and go back to that start point. Now, unfortunately, our body is very good at protecting against weight loss, but not so good at protecting against weight gain. Right. Um, so that's the best way of thinking about your set point. And the second way of, of sort of visualizing that is you might start a diet and you're at 100 kilos and you lose the 10, 20, whatever it is, and you go down to 80, but then you start clawing back to the 100. Well, you're going back to your set point. And when you're going back to your set point. Remember, this is not just going back to some of those old habits. Sure, some of those programs we follow are unrealistic, unsustainable because they tell us to cut out our favorite foods or entire food groups or get us to follow exercise programs that are not sustainable. But more importantly, even if you're following some of those um, new habits and new lifestyle changes, the physiology is changing. So as you're climbing back, back to your 100 kilos in this case, um, back to your set point, your metabolism slowing, mm. you're burning less calories at rest. Your appetite hormones are changing, ghrelin levels are surging, telling you to go and reach for more food, mm -hmm. and, the, and the appetite hormones that typically tell you to terminate food consumption, uh, like your G, GLP-1, your CCK, your leptin, mm. well, they're being suppressed. Mm. So you continue to feel hungry, even though you've just had a meal. Mm. Um, but other things are happening too. Your thyroid function's not working um, as, as good as it once was. And that's important because your thyroid gland's the gatekeeper to your metabolism. Yeah. Um, it produces a range of different hormones, T3 and T4 um, in, in particular. Those hormones are suppressed, which means your metabolic rate goes down. You burn less calories at rest. Again, meaning you regain more of that weight that you've lost. Mm but your adrenal glands start pumping out more cortisol. Cortisol is not good because that promotes weight gain. Your brain starts changing its function. Now those foods that you cut out, your favorite foods or entire food groups, well, your brain starts going, hang on, um, something's not right here. It starts to change um, its function so that you go to seek those foods that are missing from your diet. So the emotional control, um, and, and that sort of regulation of, of appetite in terms of 
energy stores, well, it all goes out of whack. Mm. It, it's, it's not working as, as well as it once would. And all of those physiological responses um, are sending you back to your start point or your set point. So when we're referring to our set point, it's the weight you're protecting, it's the weight you're going to bounce back to with dieting. But remember, you don't just go back to the start. You put on the plus GST, mm. the plus 10%, the one kilo. And instead of putting on the 0.5 to one kilo every year, which is sort of the baseline or population weight gain, you might end up putting on the one to two kilos because of the intentional weight loss through dieting. Remember, intentional mm. weight loss is actually driving up your set point over time. Wow. And so the next obvious question would be, can I change my set point at all? Can I reduce it or can, I mean, we've already talked about how it's uh, essentially increasing, but can I reduce it if there's some other way in which I can manipulate my diet? Yeah, so you can, um, but it's not going to come from um, these, I guess, drastic attempts at weight loss because we talked about how they're often very unsustainable, but often very unhealthy as well mm -hmm. because many of those diets are getting us to cut out foods or entire food groups that are important for our health. So whole grain carbs are often a common scapegoat for weight gain. Um, the next minute it's, it's nuts and then it's, it's dairy. Uh, and then we're talking about sugar and the mm. whole I quit sugar. Anything or anytime you're going to follow a weight loss program or diet program, lifestyle weight loss change, a weight, weight management program, it shouldn't be telling you to cut out foods. All foods play a role, but what we need to be doing is retraining our brain back to nature's treats. Now, remember, we always sought out foods that were naturally high in sugar, naturally high in fat. They gave us best bang for our buck. They were the ones that were going to fill us up, allow us to store the calories um, until food was then available again. So in the Monday environment, we still seek out those foods. But unfortunately, that, I guess, pleasure seeking is coming from the processed and packaged foods. Right. Now, those foods also are no good for things like our visceral fat. Okay, so not just our total body fat, but also our visceral fat. So they're, I guess, a, a food group that we need to be able to include in our modern day diet, but not as an everyday occurrence, which is what they've become. Instead, they need to be a one to two times a week mm -hmm. occurrence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I guess that important message there is a diet shouldn't be telling you to cut out foods or food groups. Now, we've been talking about low-carb diets and and um, keto and, and you know, intermittent fasting is very popular at the moment. And these diets have sort of evolved since the 1970s. It, it sort of took, really took hold with the Atkins revolution back at that time. And since then, what we've seen is pretty much the same diets coming out, but they're just a deviation of their predecessor. Mm -hmm. And when, when you look at the research and you conduct randomized controlled trials, unfortunately, they're not achieving any better results, modern day diets, compared to their predecessors. Hmm. And that's the same with intermittent fasting and various forms of intermittent fasting that we're talking about. You do get weight loss followed by weight regain. And that's because of these physiological changes that we discussed taking place. Mm -hmm. Diets are not addressing the very reason why we put the weight back on. 
Because when you continue to lose weight, your body goes into shutdown, it climbs back to its start point. Mm -hmm. But the other worrying thing is remember, a lot of those diets are getting you to cut out foods. Those foods are good for your health. So you're gonna put your health at long-term risk and potentially increase your risk of things like cancer, type two diabetes and heart disease um, because those foods are important part of everyday health. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess that's one part of the puzzle when it comes to diets. Um, unfortunately, the news is not good when you're talking about all these popular celebrity diets. It is weight loss followed by weight gain. Mm -hmm. You'll always have someone tell you about their anecdotal story about how much weight they lost on the latest diet. Mm -hmm. But again, this is what the research shows. This is what um, randomized controlled trials show particularly over a 12-month period um, where you put a person on a traditional diet, continuous caloric restriction versus, say, a keto diet or an intermittent fasting, they're all at the same point, same weight loss when you follow them up at 12 months. Mm. So what's the answer, I guess, when it comes to lifestyle um, intervention? Because this is important. It's first-line therapy. Anyone needing to lose weight should be doing something about their lifestyle, but following evidence-based care. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have also been working on how to shut off these physiological responses. Yeah. How to stop our biology coming into play. Um, and we've found that when you get a person to lose weight in small incremental doses every second month, you can get long-term weight loss and okay. you can prevent that U or V-shaped response that we typically get. Mm. So visually, um, a, a diet will look like, you know, weight loss, very good weight loss, three to six months, you hit a plateau and then it starts to regain mm. from three to six months. Yeah, typical U-shaped curve, and usually with a, a longer end of the U. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, but with the uh, intermittent weight loss, interval weight loss, you're losing weight um, every second month, so it looks like a step-down approach. So if mm -hmm. you think about it visually, it's like a little um, set of stairs mm -hmm. where you go down for a couple of kilos, you maintain the weight loss the next month, down for a couple of kilos, mm -hmm. maintain, and then um, what you're doing with that approach is stopping the metabolism slowing down, stopping the appetite hormones getting out of control, the thyroid function being suppressed, etc. Gotcha. So over the course of 12 months, instead of seeing, say, 10 or 12 kilos of weight loss and then mm -hmm. 10 or 12 kilos of weight gain, we're getting around 11 kilos of weight loss with continuous incremental weight loss over the course mm. of a year. So just to summarize that, so the evolutionary mechanisms that are designed to protect us during times of famine include this milieu of um, uh, occurrences. So you've got, if I lose five kg, let's say over the next 30 days, uh, and I do it via intermittent fasting, or go keto or very low calorie diet, whatever it is, um, my appetite hormones are messed up, so I become hungrier. Mm -hmm. um, I, uh, my thyroid function will most notably go down, which will affect my basal metabolic rate. Mm -hmm. Um, my cortisol levels will probably go up. So uh, compounding my stress yeah. as well, dumping sugar into my bloodstream, mm -hmm. not great for weight uh, uh, loss for sure. Um, 
And uh, all these things sort of coalesce to change my weight set point, um, whereby if I have the same amount of food or I go back to how I was eating before, not only will I go back to the same weight, I'll go beyond that. And what you're suggesting is if we do it in a calculated manner that switches off that fire alarm that goes off, that is designed to protect us against excessive weight loss, we can avoid that collection of uh, uh, signals that occur to that are designed to protect us uh, from from excessive weight loss. So we can we can avoid the cortisol spikes, the appetite hormones being messed up, and the thyroid function um, uh, dis dysfunction. Yes, absolutely. And the other important part of the, I guess, puzzle when it comes to dieting and, and lifestyle intervention is habits it's one thing to prescribe a, a weight loss methodology but then how do you actually go about losing that weight um, typically most people can lose the 0.5 or 1.5 kilo one pound over the course of a week so you can lose two kilos over the course of the month that's pretty achievable uh, for most people the hardest thing is then having the brakes mm. saying take the foot off the accelerator you're not allowed to lose Everyone gets excited by the number on the scales yeah. going down, they yeah. want to continue. Yeah. So for our patients, it's saying, hey, you've got to stop. Otherwise, you will get the same results you've always got. Mm. Weight loss followed by weight regain. Mm. But then what are we focusing on? Well, the key pillars of any lifestyle program should not just focus on diet. We talked about the importance of exercise. Exercise alone is not going to achieve much in terms of weight loss. We know that. The research has proven that. But it helps in terms of all of the other metabolic parameters, the visceral fat, the long-term weight maintenance, and most importantly, holding on to our muscle stores. Mm -hmm. Because when you lose weight, you want to be losing it predominantly from fat mass, fat stores, and not muscle. Because muscle is the determining factor of how efficiently your engine or your metabolic rate is going to be revving along. Mm. So you can have two people sitting here, both 80 kilos, but if one has a higher muscle mass, they're going to be burning more calories at rest than the other person. They're going to have much better success rate in terms of keeping the weight off. But then the other key part of the lifestyle program or, or pillar is sleep health. So any, I guess, lifestyle program or diet program should be focusing on all of the three pillars, diet, exercise, and sleep. Um, and we talked about you know, what sort of red flags there are when it comes to diet, when they're telling you to cut out certain foods or food groups. Um, but we've also got it the wrong way around in terms of food orientation throughout the day. Now, unfortunately, we, with diets like intermittent fasting, often they do say, well, we've got to shorten the window of when we eat. And sometimes, or often, breakfast is the first meal to be cut. But again, research has shown that that is the time when our body best uses the calories. Um, and it's more metabolically active at that time. So when you sit down to a meal, it's going to burn the calories from that meal two and a half times more efficiently huh. than what it would in the evening time. Oh, interesting. So you should actually be inc including breakfast, but not just having a small breakfast, making that it's the biggest meal of the day, tapering off throughout the end of the day, so the dinner's the smallest meal from a portion size perspective, but the most important from a social and cultural perspective. That's so interesting, because a lot of people will have been uh, told relatively recently from people who are proponents of intermittent fasting, 
that it's perfectly healthy to skip breakfast every day and just have two or one big meal throughout the rest of the day, as long as it's not like a massive three or 4,000 calorie binge, let's say. Yeah. Um, but what you're saying is, because we are more metabolically active at the start of the day, yeah. that's where we should be concentrating the bulk of our energy consumption? That's right. Wow. And in research has also shown that we're better able to appetite our appetite, um, feelings of, of hunger throughout the rest of the day if we've included breakfast. Mm. And we're more likely to resist the urge for the, the, um, the, the, the high calorie sweet treats. So it should be a part of your, your lifestyle program, breakfast diet program. Mm -hmm. um, and remember, you're not cutting out any foods. And I guess that sort of ties into what the macronutrient profile should look like. Yeah. Now, it, it needs to be balanced. Um, again, if you look at different macronutrient compositions, there's a fascinating publication that came out in New, New England Journal of Medicine, um, you know, not that long ago, a few years ago. And they basically put people on six different diets. The six different diets were just varying in macronutrient content. And sure, the low carb, high protein um, diets achieve more weight loss at the start. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you follow these participants up at 12 and 24 months, everyone was at the same weight loss. Everyone had had the same sort of weight loss followed by weight regain. And the long-term results show that no diet is more superior than the other in terms of macronutrient composition. Mm. But importantly, um, a lot of those foods we talked about that we are cutting out, like the whole grain carbs are high in fiber mm. and they're important for long-term health. Yeah. So your diet should actually consist of whole grain carbs, protein and good fats. Mm -hmm. And each meal should be nutritionally balanced. You don't need to overthink that macronutrient composition. I'm just talking about instead of sitting down to a plate of eggs alone at breakfast, you'd have eggs on whole grain toast with some avocado. Mm -hmm. So making sure that meal is balanced because um, we don't need to fixate on a particular macronutrient as long as you're balancing it out over the course of the day. And the simplest way of doing that is just making sure that you have one of those macronutrients at each of those meals. Yeah, I was, uh, I was researching recently for a podcast that we did um, internally um, about carbohydrates because they, they get a bit of a bad rep. Um, you know, 50 to 60% of total energy intake appears to be from carbohydrates and we have an obesity issue. And the recommendation is to have around 50 to 60% of energy intake from carbohydrates, but from whole quality carbohydrates. Um, and when you dig a little bit deeper, you actually uncover that the majority of the carbohydrates that populations are consuming today are refined, mm -hmm. ultra-processed carbohydrates. And only around 9% of that total 50% of total uh, energy intake is from unrefined, Incredible. unprocessed carbohydrates. So things like your whole butternut squash or sweet potato or you know broccoli, whole grains, et cetera. So therein lies sort of the branding issue that mm. I think carbohydrates have got. Um, and the benefits of carbohydrates or the uh, disadvantages of excluding carbohydrates are pretty stark because they're feeding our microbes, they're protecting us through the phytonutrients that they contain uh, they taste great, and they also um, will allow us to enjoy a plethora of other things other than just you know pure uh, protein and, and fats from from animal sources. Um, one question I get asked quite commonly though is, 
okay, I, I get getting a mixture of all these different things. I get having a balanced plate. Are there particular protein targets that I should be aiming for? Um, and does that differ according to sexes and stage of life mm. at all? I think um, one key part of the messaging is often we're getting enough protein, mm -hmm. okay? We don't think we are, so what do we do? We go and buy the high protein version of the yogurt. When yeah. the yogurt's already high in protein. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, in terms of protein sources, um, again, I guess what the most important message there is it needs to be a mix. You don't need to sit down to a plate of meat every day. Think about how you can include other sources of protein potentially plant-based sources of protein to mix up what you're having because they will also have very good outcomes in terms of your health. So beans and legumes, um, eggs, another great protein source. And then maybe meat if you're including meat on one to two days a week rather than the everyday occurrence. So try a range of protein sources and try potentially different sources to what you've typically had. And the same goes with the whole grain carbs. Um, it's, it's, it's about mixing up what you have. These foods are packed full of nutrition and they will fill you up for long periods of time. And as you alluded to as well, they're so good for our health. Mm. Um, but often they're the first thing to get cut from a diet um, because why? When we cut carbs, we're dropping body water content. And what happens when we drop body water content? Well, the number on the scales go down. down. So everyone uses carbs as that scapegoat for our weight gain, mm. when all you're really doing at the start of a diet when you restrict carbs is reducing total body water content because glycogen, um, which is the storage form of carbs, binds a lot of water. Mm. It's very heavy. So the minute you take it out, the instant, I guess, success or gratification you get with the number on the scales going down. Mm. Um, so I guess the messaging with the, the macros is mix up what you're doing, try different sources of protein and whole grain carb, and try not to have the same thing all the time. Um, and then in terms of the ageing population, well then, yes, our protein requirements do change. Um, we don't absorb nutrients as good as we, we start to age. So um, there are considerations as you, I guess, go into that next stage of life, particularly over the age of 70, mm -hmm. where you do need to focus on a little bit of extra protein. Mm -hmm. But again, it's not sitting down to just a plate of eggs. Mm. You've still got to make sure that each meal is balanced. But instead of having just your toast with, with a spread on it, including a source of protein with that meal, that would be sufficient then to boost your protein requirements, mm. um, which is particularly relevant as we become a little bit more frail, more prone to fractures mm. um, and, and other, you know, I guess, disease later in life. Are there particular numbers if for people who are who just want to know the numbers and yeah. are particularly fastidious about those? Do you subscribe to the like 1.5 to 2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, um, or are you a little bit less, a little bit more? Anywhere between the range of sort of 0.8 to 1.2 for the general population mm -hmm. is ample protein. Mm -hmm. um, when you get into that older age bracket the the 70 plus mm -hmm. well then you need to be probably on the 1.2 and above gotcha. range mm -hmm. um but again like we keep fixating on that protein we need yeah. to get two kilo two grams of, of protein per kilogram of body weight 
um, you know, strength and body weight, uh, sorry, um, bodybuilders are particularly focused yeah. on that fixation. Yeah. But you don't get better outcomes. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So just think about balance. Mm -hmm. Think about every meal having a source of each one. If you're not very well in tune with what a source of protein, carbs and fats are, well, there's some great resources out there mm. um, to, to, to educate you on that, on that sort of, um, I guess, difference in macronutrients. Yeah, I guess like for me, I don't count um, the amount of protein in grams per meal. But when I sit down to like one of my diversity bowls, let's say, yeah. I'll have some dark leafy greens. It could be rocket, it could be spinach, it could be some massage kale, whatever it is. And then I'll have sprouts, chickpeas, maybe some like, you know, um, tuna at some time. So I'll mix it up with that. Um, uh, maybe some like tempeh, mm -hmm. and then I'll have some hummus and then some extra virgin olive oil, some tomatoes, whatever is in season in terms of like a, a veggie. And that's my diversity bowl. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking in my head, you know, hummus is a source of protein, it's also got fiber and carbs. Sprouts is a source of protein. Again, it's also got fiber and carbs. And then the tempeh is a really good source of protein, all nine essential amino acids. Uh, similar to chicken yeah. in terms of the amino acid profile, but you know, a little bit less than leucine, uh, one of the amino acids. Um, so generally, I know I'm getting a good amount of protein here, but I'm not like fastidiously measuring it because A, I'm not a bodybuilder and B, I'm not an athlete either. But I know I'm getting enough for to satisfy my needs, essentially. Is that sort of how you approach Definitely. things? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. And we give um, simple guides to, to our members, um, community members of, of the Interval Weight Loss Program, visual guides as to what a meal looks like, mm. um, particularly when they're focusing on more at the start of the day and, and less at the end of the day. Uh, what would be your protein source in this example meal? What is your whole grain carbon? What is your fat? Mm. And then, of course, unlimited salad and vegetables. Yeah. So, yeah, we do give visual guides because sometimes it's hard to know, is that a protein source or is it a carb source? Um, what's, a, what's a healthy fat? Mm. Uh, often our understanding is, is um, of, of those different macronutrients is, I guess, not as good as, as, as we think it is. Yeah. Um, and and, it, and it's, it, it's far simpler than we need it or we make it out to be. Yeah. You don't need to be counting grams of protein. Um, you don't need to be counting calories. You need to be changing to a wholesome diet based on nature's treats. When you do that, you'll incidentally see a decrease in your calories without even worrying about it. Mm. Because remember, most of our calorie consumption is unfortunately coming from the processed and packaged foods, the white refined carbohydrate sources. Um, we're retraining our brain back to nature's treats so that those packaged and processed are still as part of your diet the one mm. to two times a week mm. but not the every day and making that slight switch um, is enough to to see a, a reduction in calories by about 500 um, per day just from that switch from processed packaged to wholesome um, nature's treats yeah yeah, yeah. i was going to ask you about energy balance actually as um sort of what people should know about energy balance, how important is it um, in terms of calories in, calories out? Um, and, you, you know, I, I see the detrimental side of it, but I also see some of the positives as well, particularly for people who have had successes and are disciplined enough to um, uh, stick to a particular calorie regimen. But at the same time, you know, even some people within the doctor's kitchen team have told me, 
I can't look at a pack of almonds without knowing exactly how many calories are there. I will never forget how many calories are in my almonds and they're very high and they're fattening and that always triggers alarm bells whenever I'm scattering some on my salad or like having an avocado because I just know the numbers. Yes. Um, so I, I wonder what, what your thoughts are on calories in, calories out and whether they have certain benefits for certain people. Yeah, it's a good point you make, particularly around the calorie content of a food. Uh -huh. Now we know a nutritional panel is often very inaccurate. Yeah. Um, and some data shows it can range anywhere from, um, you know, underestimating by 10% to overestimating by up to 50 to 60%. Wow. So there's huge discrepancy there. Yeah. Um, but secondly, not all calories are equal. So those calories that you get in the nuts, the 100 grams of nuts or versus the, the calories in 100 grams of pizza, um, well, you're not absorbing all of the calories in the nuts to start with. So I guess what the numbers you see on that packet are not accurate. And they're not something we should be getting caught up on because there's huge, um, I guess, I get, well, what am I trying to say? There's this huge um, range in, in terms of the accuracy. Mm -hmm. But secondly, there's a huge range in terms of the actual calories consumed from that food. Yeah. Vegetables and nuts are very good examples because they're not being absorbed um, in their entirety. And consequently, you don't absorb all those calories yeah. that you see on the packet. Mm. Um, but when it comes to weight loss, and the, you know, I guess the question you're saying is calories in versus calories out important to, to measure. Uh, well, for some people, they like that sort of rigid, structured approach. Yeah. Uh, but what we're trying to, to say to people and what we're educating um, them on is that it's far simpler than that. If we can get you to retrain your brain back to a wholesome nature's treats diet, mm. Research has shown that you will reduce your calorie consumption by about 500 calories per day anyway. Mm. And if we can make alterations to your sleep, health, and your activity, that will then get you into a negative energy balance, and you'll start to see that weight loss you're looking for, particularly on the weight loss months of the interval weight loss plan. Mm -hmm. But for those that have, I guess, very little understanding of what calories are in certain foods, sometimes it can be um, a good understanding and learning process but again, remember that it's not that reliable. Yeah, yeah. There's huge discrepancies in these numbers you're seeing reported and not all foods are equal. Yeah, yeah. We did an exercise actually for the Doctor's Kitchen app where we looked at different nutrition data sets for the same food. So we looked at something like a sweet potato. We looked at US data, European data, UK data, completely different yeah. results. And it really did, changes depending on how you're cooking said food yeah. as well. So whilst we put nutritional information on our ingredients that we've refined ourselves, we're pretty transparent about how, you know, you can't take everything as 100% accurate yeah. just by virtue of the fact that it's so difficult to get a good data set for every single ingredient. And I guess what you're saying there, I mean, the three bigger days that we've just talked about, you know, weight set point, uh, the macronutrient profile, uh, energy balance. One big takeaway for me is 
energy balance is important yes. and it is obviously the way by which we lose weight but the measure of energy energy balance being calories is is quite difficult and it's quite inaccurate so calories probably matter less but the overall concept of energy balance is still valid have i got that right that's right and the overall I guess balance of your diet is what matters. Yeah. What you're mm. putting in on an everyday occurrence. And remember the majority of us are really struggling in the modern day environment. Mm. This hedonic pathway um, is, is, is overriding that normal regulation of our body weight, the homeostatic yeah. regulation. We have a very hard time saying no to our favorite food. Yeah. We walk past the bakery, uh, we get the dopamine release, that learning chemical saying, hey, last time you had that food, it was really good. Go back for more. So you go and get the food and you get the high you're looking for. And they've become that everyday occurrence. Um, they're the foods that we need to start moving away from mm. because you can get that same pleasure response from nature's treats. And they're the ones that are naturally high in sugar, naturally high in fat. The avocado, the olive oils, the fish, um, but then the, the sugar coming from, you know, particularly foods like our fruits, mm. the papaya and the berries, etc. Mm. So you will still get that high you're looking for, but you need to get it from a nutritious food that fills you up for a long period of time and makes you feel great afterwards. Yeah, yeah. That's the real challenge in the modern day environment. That hedonic pathway is wreaking havoc mm. on our appetite system. And consequently, our weight goes up. When we, we talked about this, we react by dieting, then we drive our set point up even further and we get in a worse off position than what we were before we started. Yeah. So I guess that, that real key concept of, of a, a lifestyle program that's going to help you um, achieve long-term results mm. has to focus on forming habits mm. and habits that will last a lifetime. Mm. So you've got a weight loss methodology, but then also what is the wraparound? What are you going to do to learn those habits? What habits are you forming and how are you going to make sure they stick? That's a real key part of the puzzle. Yeah. You, only, you should only ever be taking on things that you know you can stick to. Yeah, yeah. Because that's I, a key part of long-term weight maintenance. Yeah, I'm really glad we're having this conversation because I, I feel like uh, some people need to be peacekeepers in the war mm. on uh, sort of weight loss online because you've got certain communities that just like, look, it's all about calories. Yeah. Forget everything else that you've heard online. It's all about calories. Reduce your calories, you lose weight. Simple, right? Negating the complex issues around our neuroendocrinology, our appetite system, the evolutionary mechanisms that we have still inbuilt, and it's part of our software, um, as well as the fact that there are huge inaccuracies in how we even measure calories. So what we're trying to say is energy balance is a valid concept. The way we measure energy balance through calories is flawed, mm -hmm. and the bigger picture is lifestyle, consistency and finding a strategy that actually works for you yes. and for some people it is measuring calories yes. for some people it is two days uh, two meals a day intermittent fasting for some people it's interval weight loss um, but overall you've got to find that strategy that works for you and what you were just saying about like processed foods and um, you know those sort of uh, the hijacking of our of our dopamine systems I'm I'm a sucker for these kind of foods. I can't have these kind of foods in my house. We all are. It's a, yeah, it's yeah. it's like my wife always uh I always like chat with my wife at home like look, you can't keep certain foods in the house because I kn I know where they are yep. 
and I will make a beeline for the cupboards and I will snack on those nachos, <laughs> those sweet treats, the amaretti biscuits, the, all that kind of stuff. I've got to have that out of the house. So I have a rule with myself. I can enjoy those things when it's out of the house on occasion. Yeah. I can't keep it in the house because otherwise that will become a daily occurrence for me. And for a lot of people that is, you know. It is and similar for me. I, I mean, remember we're all wired to seek these out. They, mm. are, they taste delicious. Yeah. They, they, they really do a good job of manufacturing something that is just ticking all the boxes yeah. and getting all of those feel-good chemicals um, and highs that we're looking for. But remember... You will still, you can still get those highs. We were always searching for those highs, but you need to be able to get them from nature's treats. Mm. And that's why, again, we, if a diet's telling you to take out certain foods like fruits, mm. well, they're a key part of the, the high that you're going to be searching for and this, this, that sort of pleasure that you will get. So, yeah, 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 yeah totally. Uh, I'm a big fan of nature's treats. Mm. Let, uh, let's talk a, uh, a bit about some of the pros and cons of all these different methodologies, right? So I'm going to start with interval weight loss because I, I, I've, whenever I get asked a question online or from patients even these days, I always point them in the direction of interval weight loss uh, as it pertains to long-term consistent uh, weight maintenance because people always like, you know, if I want to lose weight, what should I do? I'm like, just go interval weight loss because I know it's research, evidence-based, and it's more holistic and lifestyle-based than any other um, uh, program out there. But there's pros and cons, right? Because yeah. there's obviously the, I mean, you alluded to it earlier when you, when you talked a bit about patience, yeah. about how people need patience with this kind of program. Yes. So well, what are the pros and cons of, uh, of interval weight loss to start us off with? Well, I guess start with the cons. I mean, you just alluded to a very good one. This is a patience game. Mm. I mean, Interval weight loss is not a quick fix. We, we couldn't care less about short-term wins. Mm. We don't want you losing weight in the normal, continuous fashion. Um, it will see you go back and, and achieve the same results you've always got. Mm. So sometimes, many of our patients don't get weight loss from the get-go. Some don't get weight loss for six months. Mm. And why is that? Because they've done so much damage to things like their metabolism through that through the years or decades of mm. dieting. So it takes time for their body to sort of reset, recalibrate, find its set point, um, and then and, and embrace these principles of a healthy lifestyle, the principles that they've been looking for, I guess, or their body's ne been needing for an entire lifetime. Then they start to see the weight loss they're looking for. Mm. But most importantly, and this is one of the biggest pros, is your health will be improving from day one. Mm. Because we're telling you and we're prescribing you a diet plan based on long-term outcomes for health. Yeah. And this is largely the components of a Mediterranean diet. You're not cutting out foods, but you're putting in foods that will improve your health from the minute you start following the program. Um, and importantly, you're not going to have to cut out any of your favorite foods. And it's another huge pro of, of the program and, and what I guess many patients feel relieved about for once in their lifetime they're told they can eat anything they can still continue to have the chocolate bar or the packet of chips that they want but as part of that habit forming process we're going to reduce that consumption over time so that about two months down the track which is how long it takes for a habit to change for an old habit to go and a new one to form you will see that frequency you know, one to two times a week instead of the every day mm. 
So I guess, you know, thinking about it from a broad picture, the, the real challenge is the patience and the long-term mindset you mm. need to have. For many that have done damage through dieting um, and years of it or decades of it, they won't get weight loss from the get-go. Mm. Mm. And we're telling them you have to just be patient and hang on and believe in the system. Your body's sort of rejuvenating yeah. um, and resetting. And eventually that weight loss will come. Mm. And the second part is that you can't just go out and continue to lose weight. So if you've got weight loss in the first month from the minute you started, and that's very common for males because us as males don't tend to do anything about weight. Very few of us tend to sign up to diet programs. It's usually an 80% female, 20% mm. male split. Um, so they're more likely to respond quicker, but you've got to get them to stop every second month and yeah. say no further weight loss. Yeah no further weight loss, so that you do get that sort of step down approach. Yeah. So again, that can be seen as a con because you've got to slow it right down. Yeah. But you're not going to get there any slower because if you did follow the typical diet or the latest and greatest celebrity diet, you will get that U or V-shaped response. So at 12 months time, when I follow you up, you may have lost 10 or 12 kilos over three to six months, maybe more, maybe less, but you will have put it back on. Whereas if you follow this interval weight loss approach, Small and steady, gradual, intermittent bouts of weight loss, mm. you'll lose the 10 to 12 over the course of the year and you won't be putting it back on. Yeah. So I guess, you know, there's so many different pros and cons of yeah. every different program, but that mm. gives you an idea of what we see as, as common challenges for our patients. Yeah, which is why I'm a big fan of it. And I think, you know, it's more of a, a long-term approach. Um, intermittent fasting has obviously become quite popular. Yeah. I think from my experience of chatting to people about it and my own experience of it, it's um, it slots into people's lifestyles yes. quite easily. And I think that's a big pro yep. for a lot of people. But what are, your, what are your thoughts on I that? I couldn't agree more. I mean, whenever we're given a set of rules, um, we're very good at sticking to it. Mm. Now, intermittent fasting, it's an easy rule. Just eat between this window of the day or eat restrict on these days and, and eat more on these days. It depends on what sort of version of intermittent fasting you're yeah. following. It could be a, a, you know, a sort of one meal a day or it could be a 16-8. So if you find something easier to stick to, great, that works for you. Mm. But more importantly, and this is where the cons come into play, if that program is not or diet is not advising on you on what you should be eating throughout the course of the day and course of the week, raises a lot of red flags mm -hmm. because it needs to educate you on the principles of a healthy diet because most important is health and long-term weight management. Um, and many of those diets aren't telling you that, um, particularly when it comes to sort of the low-carb movement, keto. Um, it's sort of like restrict your you know, carbs or you know, boost up your fat content. When you're doing that, often you're cutting out, as we talked about, a lot of those foods that are good for long-term health. So I guess when it comes to diet, if there's a diet that you can stick to mm -hmm. and you find easier to adhere to, great. That's, that's important. And that's why a lot of people do get success with different diets and we, how we all respond differently to diets. But a diet shouldn't be telling you to cut out foods or food groups. And it should be prescribing the components of that diet and telling you exactly what you should be eating day to day. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. have to be, I'm not talking about how many grams of protein or how many calories you should be having, but what does the meal look like? Yeah, yeah. And what if, uh, you know, it's a, a, a let's say it's a 16-8 uh, 
program. So you eat uh, between eight hours during the day and you can choose whatever hours those might be. Yeah. It might be to include breakfast after yeah. hearing this podcast because you know that's where yeah. you're going to be utilizing most of the food and, and you're most metabolically active. And it's a healthy Mediterranean dietary pattern. Is that something that you could get on board with? or When it comes to the science and, and particularly the gold standard randomized controlled trials, um, there's now a couple of good trials in that, that, that space with intermittent fasting and 16-8. Mm. Unfortunately, the results are showing the same as their predecessors, mm. and that's weight loss followed by weight regain. Mm. You're still getting the U or V-shaped response. Mm. Why? Because of the physiological responses okay. taking place. Yeah. So yeah. still not addressing the real reason we regain weight, mm. the biological imperative to regain weight those evolutionary barriers we're up against. Remember, this is an evolutionary problem. You need an evolutionary solution. Mm. What we've been doing for the last five decades does not work. Um, if anything, it's, it's contributed to this obesity epidemic. Um, and every day there's a new scapegoat or a new food that we're, we're pushing the blame onto. So, you know, if, if a diet's easier to stick to, great. But again, in terms of that science and research for long-term weight loss, they're still achieving the same as their predecessors, weight loss followed by weight regain. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. So what basically whatever you choose has to be in line with the way we are evolutionary adapted to respond to weight loss. That's right. Okay. That 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 I think that's a really good heuristic, a real good sort of rule of thumb is like you can choose two days, two meals a day. You can choose intermittent fasting. You can, you know, do low carb if you like, if that's you know in line with what you prefer to eat. Um, but if it's with the goal of weight loss, you have to be mindful of your body's physiological response to weight loss or clinically significant weight loss, which yes. everyone knows now is just five percent of your. Right. But also weight. health. Remember. Mm. So the proponents of the interval weight loss program are definitely not low carb or mm. intermittent fasting, whatever. We're, we're prescribing a diet based on what long-term evidence shows is good for long-term health outcomes. Mm. Mm. So you will be told to have whole grain carbs, protein and fat every meal. You mm. will be told to eat from big to small. Mm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's important to really hone in on that health um, message as well because that's just as important as weight. Yeah, You can go through a lifestyle program and not have any change in your weight. Mm. But if you're following, again, the proponents of um, evidence-based care for good health outcomes, your health's mm. improving. Your yeah. cholesterol's going down. Your blood sugar's improving. Your liver and kidney function's improving. Mm. What does that mean? You're, gonna, you're going to be metabolically healthy mm. and you're going to reduce your risk of getting the type 2 diabetes, the heart disease, etc. Mm. The metabolic disease that often comes with carrying excess weight. Mm. Yeah. So that's why I guess the components of, of this IWL program is, is, is focusing on what does evidence show is good for health outcomes, yeah. not just weight. Not just weight, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, let's look at the sort of full spectrum of medical tools that we have at our disposal, right? Mm. So we've been talking a lot about lifestyle as medicine, food as medicine, um, but there's a whole bunch of others. Um, uh, what, what, you take your pick about all the sort of different sort of 
the smorgasbord we have for, for, for healthy weight loss. Yeah, we do. We have <laughs> such a widespread. And I mean, we research all of these different methods <clears throat> in our weight loss clinics um, at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, University of Sydney. Now, first line therapy is, is again, as you talked about, mm. lifestyle, food as medicine. Mm. That is what everyone should be doing not fad diets, mm -hmm. not following celebrity diets or diets that are pushed out by, you know, big name social media sensations. Um, so I guess, how do you determine or distinguish between all of those different diets? Well, obesity is a science. There's a lot to it. We've talked about a lot of this today. There's a lot going on within a person's body when they lose weight. Um, so it's important to really listen to healthcare professionals um, and focus on health, not weight. But across the spectrum of care, there's not just lifestyle programs. There is a range of different tools. There's very low energy diets, there's mm -hmm. low energy diets. Now what these typically are are where we give meal replacements, shakes mm. and bars and soups mm. to drastically reduce your, your calorie intake, anywhere between sort of 800 to 1200 calories per day. Yeah which is maybe a third of what we typically have. Um, but then the next sort of tool in that workshop is your pharmaceutical drugs. Mm -hmm. um, you've also got medical devices like gastric balloons where we endoscopically put balloons into people's stomachs, blow them up, which fills them up mm. for a period of time, and then take them out after a set amount of time. Um, and then right at the other end of the spectrum being bariatric surgery. Mm -hmm. Now, as you can imagine, the weight loss efficacy is really widespread between the lifestyle intervention versus the more drastic sort of end-stage care being bariatric surgery. Yeah. Now, with lifestyle intervention, yeah, I, you typically get about 5 to 10% of weight loss um, over the course of a year. Uh, we're talking about sort of the evidence-based care here. The very low energy diets is, is, is quite varied, um, mm. but you will get more weight loss because it's a more aggressive treatment. Um, you're drastically reducing your calories. So whenever you do that, you're gonna get quicker and more um, rapid weight loss. Now, pharmaceutical drugs, for the better part of the last two decades, we haven't really had anything that's been effective. But more, more recently, uh, we do have a new class of drugs now called the GLP-1 agonists, mm -hmm. which act on our appetite um, suppression, um, help with those feelings of hunger. And they are starting to, I guess, shape what the future looks like in terms of anti-obesity pharmaceutical drugs. Yeah. Now, the range of efficacy that we're getting there is sort of anywhere between uh, 7 8% up to maybe even 21 22%. Wow. Um, and that's sort of over the course of a year. Mm -hmm. And then we've got bariatrics, well, medical, medical devices. Yeah. Um, you know, that can be anywhere sort of 6 to 15% of weight loss over mm. the beginning course of a year. And bariatric surgery, which might be anywhere between 25 and 30% of yeah. weight loss. Yeah. So the one where I guess really talking about at the moment was bariatric surgery was very popular for, for you know, a um, long time. But now there are obesity drugs that have been approved. Uh, I think we've now got about six um, approved drugs by the FDA. And it, it is a widespread of, of sort of weight loss efficacy over the course of the year, but everyone's looking for them. Yeah, absolutely. What's your hot take on uh, the GLP-1 uh, agonists? 
I think there's two messages. Uh, the first one is a medication works while you're taking it. Uh -huh. Now, unfortunately, when we take these patients off the medication, what happens? They're re regaining the weight. Mm -hmm. Okay, and we're now publishing that in high impact journals, um, and you're seeing groups across the globe bringing out these 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 papers. So. Mm -hmm. You're still getting weight loss followed by weight regain. It works while you're taking it. Mm -hmm. So then it comes down to how long are they going to be taken for? How long can you, you know, access it? Um, that's a particular issue at the moment mm -hmm. with the wide, sort of wide, worldwide um, availability issues. But then secondly, it's not going to be effective unless you wrap around an effective lifestyle management program. Yeah. You still need to be following the key principles of a healthy diet, exercise, physical activity plan, and good sleep health. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a matter of, you know, injecting these drugs and, and thinking that, you know, the weight loss has come, I can now just eat whatever I want. To get those good long-term uh, health outcomes and, and longer-term weight management outcomes, you need to be following the principles of a healthy lifestyle program, mm -hmm. evidence-based lifestyle program. So one, they work while you're taking them. When you come off them, you regain the weight. And two, while you're taking them, you need to be following healthy lifestyle program. Mm. It, w when you describe the mechanism of action to mm. patients, what are you, how are you describing it? Is it purely acting on the appetite suppression? It's one of the key, almost potentially the most potent mm -hmm. mechanism. Mm -hmm. uh, if you think about, again, how we regulate our appetite day to day, we're getting all these signals produced from organs like our stomach, mm. gastrointestinal tract, pancreas, acting on our brain, a clever part of the brain called the hypothalamus, telling us when and when we shouldn't eat. Now, GLP-1 is one of those hormones that is produced um, uh, by the gastrointestinal tract after you start to eat. So with more of it, you feel full. Mm -hmm. um, you're, more, you're better able to manage your hunger, so you're less likely to to, I guess, eat large volumes of food. So it is acting on that appetite suppression or appetite signaling system, acting on your hypothalamus, that clever part of the brain, lighting up telling you to, to put down the fork, put down the spoon and to terminate food consumption. Mm. So that's the simplest way of thinking about how these sort of new class of um, medications are working. Yeah. They're predominantly working on the hypothalamus, which is that central control. Yeah in the brain yeah and aside from the main side effect being they only work when yeah. you are taking them and uh, again um uh, taking into account the 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 issue of rapid weight loss leading to the milieu of different signals that lead to rapid weight gain um are there any other side effects of these new class of drugs that concern you or that you've seen in the research? With most or all of the GLP-1 um, uh, class of drugs, you are going to get um, nausea, mm -hmm. vomiting, mm. particularly at the, the early stage onset. We do find patients start to tolerate that over time mm. um, and often, and, and they are, the drugs are titrated up in terms of dosage over a planned period of time. Gotcha. So you will get side effects. You're going to feel sick. Mm. Um, you're going to feel nauseous. You're going to be vomiting. Um, but the tolerability uh, over time definitely does improve. Yeah. So yeah. it's definitely a consideration. Um, and they're injectables as well. 
Yeah, yeah. So there's an issue with compliance, I guess, and the fact that it's quite uncomfortable to, to take. And, I, and I, I don't know if there are any research studies looking at a sort of hybrid approach between these new class of drugs and maybe bolted onto something like, you know, the interval weight loss programs, whereby you, you use it as almost like a little bit of a, a motivational factor to sort of like help you along the journey of, of uh, reducing those sort of like hunger signals, but then also educating someone about a Mediterranean diet and eating more wholesome foods. I don't know if that's been carried out yet. Well, often with randomized controlled trials, when these patients come into our clinics, they're prescribe either the intervention, mm. now the intervention will be, say, the investigational drug, the GLP-1 in this, in this instance, plus lifestyle intervention. So they'll see dietitians, maybe exercise physiologists, but they're following or educated on the components of a lifestyle, healthy lifestyle program um, and healthy dieting, eating plan. The placebo group are also getting that lifestyle intervention. So this is why with an RCT, you get very good results. Mm. Not just the efficacy from the drug in this instance, but they're also seeing healthcare professionals. Yeah. And it's why you always see weight loss in a placebo group. Mm. The fact that they're just coming into a clinic, a hospital clinic, where they're seeing people that actually know what they're talking about, they get weight loss. Mm. Um, and we know, remember, lifestyle programs do result in weight loss, and mm. typically 5 to 10% over the course um, of a year. So. Uh, the efficacy is just greater in this instance in the in, in this, the treatment room being the, the weight loss drug. Mm, mm. So when you look at, I guess, the peer-reviewed science, the randomised controlled trials, those participants are not just getting the drug or placebo, they are getting lifestyle intervention as well. But I guess the worrying thing is if you go to your you know general practitioner, primary care provider, they prescribe you the drug, you need to be following the components of a healthy lifestyle program in the comforts of your own home. Yeah. You can't just take the drug and continue to follow those unhealthy habits, unhealthy lifestyle behaviours. You're not mm. going to get good long-term results. Yeah, yeah. You will get short-term results. There's no debating that. You get good sh short-term results with diets. Mm, mm. Um, what we're interested in is the long-term efficacy. What happens later on, um, you know, in terms of your, your habit change, um, and in particular, what your weight if you've come off the drug yeah. and haven't made any changes to your lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So overall, are you bullish on the, the new class of drugs? or Well, they're a tool like... in the workshop. Okay. Uh -huh. So the most important thing is that people need to be following lifestyle interventions, yeah. first-line therapy. Yeah. Everyone will put up their hand and say, I've done that, i tried that, yeah. but they haven't. They've been yeah. following fad diets for the better part of, you know, yeah. either the last few years or decades of yeah. their lifetime. They haven't seen healthcare professionals. They haven't been following evidence-based lifestyle interventions and consequently they've been failing. Mm. They also haven't understood why they've been failing because the dieting industry want us to make us think that we're failing due to a lack of willpower. Why? So we go back and sign up to their program again. Often we sign up to the same program over the course of the year. So people are signing up to five diets, mm. but not always five different diets, often five of the same diet mm. over and over and over again. They do the 12-week cycle, regain, 12-week cycle, regain. So, you know, I guess that's the most important thing. If a person's fail with evidence-based lifestyle intervention, then some of these other tools um, are, are effective and, and part of that 
long-term weight loss or weight management. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the, the jury is out on these kind of medications long-term yeah. to see whether they can be paired with lifestyle interventions as well in a more holistic sort of education. And I, and I guess um, I'd love your hot take on personalized nutrition as well, because obviously personalized medicine is becoming a bigger thing with more targeted pharmaceuticals based on things like genomics, et cetera. Mm. Um, but personalized nutrition is becoming a big thing where people are measuring their unique responses uh, to certain foods, whether that be through uh, a continuous glucose monitor, um, a gut microbiota test. Um, what, what are your thoughts on it? Do you think this could be a good thing? Yeah, look, it, there's definitely um, a lot of research in this field. It's an evolving field. Um, and I guess w what's the take-home message there? We definitely do respond. We all just respond differently to, to different diets mm. and different diet approaches. Um, so uh, it, it, I guess it's a very interesting and fascinating field and it definitely has application in the real world. But I guess when you, you're sort of mirroring it up with what we've been talking about and that physiology of weight loss and, and why we're regaining weight, mm. it's still got to tie in with that. Yeah, yeah. Remember, this is what we're up against. We're up against our body. It's going to mm. shut down. It doesn't matter what approach and how you, you, you personalize mm. that approach um, based on data you've collected. Yeah. You're still going to be, unfortunately, in that situation where your body goes into shutdown mode. Everybody's, everyone's body does this. Mm. There's no one that's exempt from this rule. Unfortunately, yeah. we all evolved in the same way yeah. to sort of fight this starvation mode and you will see your body changing its response when you start to lose weight. Yeah. So yeah. That's, that's a real key part of the education. Because if you can like, empower a person with that education yeah. so that they understand why they've been failing, um, often you can sort of divert them away from, I guess, the, the, the nitty-gritty detail mm. because it, it is far simpler than that. Mm. Um, and, and it's about, you know, finding a way and finding things that you can stick to. So, again, you form those habits. Yeah. These are great takeaways. Uh, you know, for the listener, if they don't know already, <laughs> you shouldn't be losing weight too fast mm. and stick to a holistic way of eating and you'll be all right. Mm. Is that a fair summary? <laughs> it is. I mean, look, there's another interesting part there around fast weight loss versus slow weight loss. Yeah, yeah. Because, again, you know, being across all of the literature and studying this day in, day out for the better part of now the last two decades yeah. at the one place, RPA, Sydney Uni, even if you lose the weight slow and continuous, you're going to regain it, right? Mm -hmm. But if you lose it fast, yes, you're going to regain it. Not necessarily faster than the slow approach. Mm. What we're saying is that the physiology is still coming into play. Mm. So regardless of whether you lose it slow versus fast, you're getting the U or V-shaped response. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The biological protections are coming into play. But what mm. we're saying is rethink what you're doing and instead of that continuous weight loss approach, lose it with an interval approach in small increments every second month. So you visualize that step down approach. So mm. you switch off the physiology mm. and you keep your body out of the whole race. Because yeah. you've, you've got to turn it off. You've got to get it working with you. You've got to redefine your set point in intervals along the way. And you've got to think about the long term.
Yeah. And that long term is, you know, maybe not just a year, it could be two, five years, 10 years down the track. What is it you're working towards? Are you a father, a mother? Do you want to be a healthy role model for them? Mm. Well, focus on things like that. Don't focus on the number on the scales. You have to take the focus away from that and focus on a much more, um, I guess, holistic, bigger goal, particularly focused around health. If you do that, you're more likely to stick to your goals. You're more likely to form the habits mm. and you're more likely to reach out and years down the track and say, hey, guess what? It worked and I've still kept the weight off and I'm metabolically healthy. Brilliant. I love it. Thank you so much. I Thanks think that's going to be super useful for people, honestly. And, uh, you know, that emotional piece, that emotional connection to the why, I think is um, something that a lot of fad diets completely gloss over. And it's so, so important. So I really appreciate you uh, taking the time whilst I'm in Oz to, to tell us all about it. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Always, man. Dr. Rupert, <laughs> great to have you. Great to be back on and great to see you again. So yeah. thank you very much. Yeah, well, I'm yeah. enjoying the sunshine, so. <laughs> <laughs> good man, it's a good place, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I know, it's gorgeous. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Doctor's Kitchen Podcast. Remember, you can support the pod by rating on Apple, follow along by hitting the subscribe button on Spotify, and you can catch all of our podcasts on YouTube if you enjoy seeing our smiley faces. Review show notes on the doctorskitchen.com website and sign up to our free weekly newsletters where we do deep dives into ingredients, the latest nutrition news, and of course, lots of recipes by subscribing to the Eat, Listen, Read newsletter by going to thedoctorskitchen.com forward slash newsletter. And if you're looking to take your health further, why not download the Doctor's Kitchen app for free from the App Store? I will see you here next time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.